I believe that robotics today is very much like Mount Everest in 1952 or PCs in 1978. There's so much potential right now. So it's a really, really exciting place to follow as well. Welcome to the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Abel, a real estate attorney and member of Stoll's Agribusiness Industry Group. This season, we're interviewing respected industry leaders and discussing how they and their companies are embracing innovation and capitalizing on new opportunities to move their industries forward in an ever-changing world. Subscribe at Stoll.com, that's S-T-O-E-L.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Greetings, listeners. Welcome to this episode of the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. I am your host, Patrick Abel. Our guest today is Charlie Anderson, co-founder and CEO of Burrow, a robotics company focused on providing autonomous robots to support the farming industry. Burrow is based in Philadelphia and has a growing team of over 40 employees. The company has taken on multiple rounds of venture funding since its inception in 2018. As stated on the Burrow website, the mission of Burrow is to solve the labor problem facing farmers by making robots like Wally a reality. The fact that Charlie referenced a Pixar movie in his company's mission statement tells you everything you need to know about Charlie's wit and down to earth style. Charlie and I have been friends for over a decade and attended business school together from 2012 to 2014. For as long as I've known him, Charlie has loved to build things and work with his hands. So his career at the intersection of robotics and farming seems to me like a perfect fit. In this episode, Charlie and I will be discussing the challenges and thrills of starting a company from scratch, Burroughs' place in the agribusiness market, and what he thinks the future of robotics looks like in general and in farming in particular. Charlie, welcome to the program. Pat, great to be here. Thank you for having me on. Really, really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I know you're a busy guy, so appreciate you making the time for us. I wanted to start off by just letting you tell your story a little bit. Um, I know you've got farming, farming in your blood. So just tell us where you're from and how did you get interested in the intersection of farming and robotics? Yeah, sure thing. So um, I grew up on a working fruit and vegetable farm. Uh, my family has two businesses. One is a working farm. And then my dad has a construction business, a real estate business. And for me, Within both of those things, kind of from day one, what I loved was the machinery and the technology and the tools that people used to work. Um, and so I probably started driving farm tractors as about four years old. And like, if I can do it in air conditioned cab, pushing buttons and with a throttle, that's so much more appealing to me than getting, getting out of a cab and doing something by hand. And on my family farm, there were tons of tasks, whether it's, you know, weed whacking, spot spraying, picking, pruning, there's just this endless scope of tasks require getting out of the cab and doing something by hand. And so fast forward a bit, um, got an MBA, got into business school. And I was going, I went to work for this big company called CNH, which is Deere's largest competitor. And I had a really funky role there, both looking at autonomy companies from an M&A perspective and also doing a lot of like sales and marketing and strategy work with farmers. And from that kind of concluded, hey, big company is not really where I want to be. I really want to build something on my own. And so fast forward, but I had, a, I had a colleague whose family had a chicken farm. And idea number one became building a robot to pick up dead chickens. And, and thank God we have pivoted since then. Um, but, but that initial conceivably, uh, I guess, conceivably not the most glamorous idea has kind of unfolded into a very, very different path. And today we're a team of around 44 uh, with about 350 robots running uh, within agriculture on multiple continents. Um, 
he's growing fast. Those things have kind of evolved in a hurry in retrospect, but it definitely was a lot of tireless, tedious, uh, kind of high perseverance steps along the way. The story about the chicken is is great. It, it reminds me of you know a case that we read in business school about the the early early prototype of the three D printer, where a guy you know took an inkjet printer and he used kitty litter and Elmer's glue to concoct this initial prototype showing the concept of how you could print layers and make a 3D object. And it sounds like maybe that was kind of your, your, your test case with the, with the chicken thing. What, what are some lessons that you learned from that initial prototype that you know, ultimately carried through to the, the robots that you see today? Yeah, so I think, um, yeah, a bunch of lessons. I think for one, um, robotics is really, 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 really times like a billion hard. It's just really, really hard. And so building a system that can move around, that can do perception, that can navigate reliably under canopies, that can behave safely near people, all, you know, along the movement side, that can also recognize a live or dead animal, and that can do a manipulation type task and do it in a really not glamorous, kind of dull, dirty part of the food economy that people don't really want to think about. That, that felt like a really, really hard way to start a company. And then my wife at the same time was you know, coming up with names for the product. Uh, there was Rumbach, uh, Morty for the mortician. So just like every, the, the, the aspect of building a prototype to, or let me actually, let me take a step back. Uh, within broiler houses, which are how chickens are produced in the US, they typically have a 30 to 40,000 square foot facility. And Within those houses, people have to walk up and down the aisles throughout the day and literally collect chickens that have, have perished because they're grown in so, in so much uh, uh, confinement. And so that initial idea for me seemed like, okay, it's, it's dull, it's sturdy, arguably dangerous. Maybe that's a good place to go with robots. And, and as I got further and further into looking at this space, I realized, hey, it's really hard to do, uh, really niche market and not a glamorous market that people really want to work on. And I think robotics is so much around both you know, the potential and practicability today in the broader vision and, and starting a company around a really kind of gross part of the economy was not proved to not be the best place to start in short. Um, so those are, I guess, a couple of lessons woven in. And I think um, I probably spent about like two or three months on that concept and then pivoted very hard to the concept of Burrow. And Burrow is mobility first and foremost. There's no manipulation element today. And, the, and I think what I was discovering was that where there are a lot of people working, uh, if you can introduce an autonomous vehicle alongside those people, uh, the fact remains where there are many people, there's a lot of labor. And so a robot next to people means a robot can get into environments where there's a lot of people working. And the most labor-intensive areas in agriculture tend to be hen-harvested produce and nurseries, which are, I think, much more aligned with uh, Kind of where people where we want the food system to go people eating you know healthy fruits and vegetables and and buying um you know arguably things that are more green as opposed to things that are that are meat-based tell us about the early days of burrow um how did you connect with your co-founders and you know what kind of trials did you go through searching for product market fit as you launched and scaled a company yeah so um 2016 2017 i was working for cnh uh, had this, went to lunch with a colleague one day, and that is where the idea of building a robot to pick up deceased chickens came up. Started doing that for probably two or three months, probably spent like 30 or 40 grand trying to build a robot to do that. Realized very quickly, I did not have the skills to do it. it, was not something I wanted to do in terms of like the thematic focus area. Yeah. And so at that point, I did the logical thing and I quit my job. Um, I had no money. 
uh, and and I tried to find some co-founders. And so through that, um, and, and at the same time, I had this application on my computer that would send out probably like 150 emails a day, really just spam emails to different uh, kind of people within agriculture and landscaping with different robotic concepts. And um, what I could see in the marketplace very quickly was that, uh, what I could see very quickly is that within Think about agriculture, half of farm revenue is crops, half is livestock. Within the crop space, two-thirds of the revenue pool is corn, wheat, and soybeans. And that space is almost entirely mechanized, meaning there's no labor in it. So it's like it's not, it's 60 to 70% of the farm of, of farm revenue is in corn, wheat, and soybeans, but only eight to ten percent of the labor works in that space. And about 80 to 90% of the labor works in fruit vegetable and nursery crops where people are screaming for automation and there's virtually nothing they can buy. And that, that virtually nothing they can buy remains true to today. And so when I was spamming people with different autonomy concepts, that's, that segment was emerging most forcefully. And I was kind of uh, concluding that an autonomous ground vehicle likely was something that people wanted. And I would literally go fly out to California and like sleep in the trunk of a Kia and just go drive around and meet with farmers. And they were really, really positive in responses with with the concept of an autonomous ground vehicle that can, carried heavy things alongside people at work in harvesting and nursery applications. So that was like the genesis or kind of pivot point of the idea. And so I was at a point in time, this would be in 2017, early 2018, where I had no money. Uh, and I uh, moved out of my childhood bedroom into my little sister's basement in Philadelphia. Uh, and Philadelphia has a big robotic scene. And so I just started reaching out to people. And from that, I found Terry and DeBoer, who are, who are my two co-founders. And we literally, you know, started out as like three guys and a dog in an unheated barn, um, you know, welding stuff by hand, soldering it together. Um, and then pretty quickly, we found a couple groups, namely Driscoll's, the California Table Grape Commission, uh, and, and actually the, one of the largest blueberry growers in the world. Uh, and those groups are very keen on paying to trial something. And so with like, literally, you know, agreement to buy two systems for like 25 grand, we then could go back and raise a little bit of friends, family, and full money, and then go through a couple of accelerators and kind of where it's always doing this kind of catch 22, um, you know, pursuit of opportunity beyond resources control thing where you're like establishing there's demand and then racing, racing, racing to get a little bit of money to fund it. Um, and then I guess by 2020, our team was at six people and we had 20 systems running in the field. 2021, we were at around 12 people. We had about 90 systems running the field. Last year, we were around uh, 200 or so systems in the field and around 30 or so folks. And this year, around 44 people and we'll be, you know, right around 350 systems in the wild and should be north of probably coming close to like a thousand by the end of next year. Um, so that's a little bit of the, of the, of the growth ramp, um, you know, to where we are today. Um, you know, I spent a little over a year working at a startup uh, as one of the early employees. And someone I worked with once told me that startup years are like dog years, you age seven years for every year. Um, it can be a volatile environment, really fun or really awful. Um, you know, what, what advice would you give to someone who's maybe just coming out of business school or in their 20s and they're, they're excited about startups? What, what, what would you what would be like one or two sort of nuggets of wisdom that you would share? Yeah, I think um, it's definitely a marathon, not a sprint. You need to do it for the right reasons. I think there are many, 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 much, much better ways to do well for yourself economically that have nothing to do with starting a company. Um, and I think that, that uh, 
to me, starting a company, like, like you, you have very, very genuine reasons to do it. And it's very much a marathon. And the final thing, I think it really is a people game, meaning that a great company is all about the team you assemble. And then how do you empower them to do things better than you ever could and like really get the heck out of the way so they can just go, you know, make stuff happen. Um, and, and that kind of general principle applies both to members of your team as employees or co-founders, but also to investors. Um, and so I think that the, yeah, I think, it, I think it's insanely hard to start a company. The, the, the highs are incredibly high. The lows are incredibly low. Um, and you're going to have many, many, many of them. And I, I, I definitely, I love the dog years analogy that I, I'm about to close a round of financing, which, which has been my checklist preventing me from getting a dog. Um, and I, I am definitely, uh, definitely sympathetic to the, or it, it's definitely true that you learn so many things so rapidly. And if you don't learn them, you just fail. And then, and then the failure case, I think that in a regular career path, failure is, you know, uh, you got a bad review or, or maybe, maybe you get laid off or you go on to the next one. With a company, if it fails, it's, hey, I got to lay off, you know, uh, dozens of people and they go home without a job and I failed my customers and failed my investors. And so I think the, the, the fear of failure part in it remains there at some level. Uh, the highs are very high, the lows are very low. Um, and at least for me personally, it's the only thing I can imagine doing. I think I've, I've, I've worked in other companies and like to me, like building this, this high growth engine is all I want to do. And so even though, the, even though the lows can be very low sometimes, it's like, well, you know, the, at least I'm driving it. And like, if I have a really bad day, I can, I can chart my own course or my team's course to fix it in the next day, um, which I find really exhilarating and fun at, you know, at the same time. Yeah, that's, that's great insight. I mean, I think that's, a common thread you see among successful entrepreneurs is there is no plan B. This is what they want to do and they're going to do it and they're going to drive until they make it work. Can you tell us a little more about where Burrow is situated in the market now? You know, what's your typical customer? What products or services do you offer? And what's the problem that you're, you're ultimately trying to solve? Yeah, totally. So, um, so very succinctly, I guess to, to a mass audience, we build Disney's Wally or Star Wars's R2D2 for work outdoors in a 1.0 format. So that'd be the mass audience kind of tagline, i.e., Wally. Um, to a farmer, what we build is a, effectively an autonomous ATV that is either people scale or pallet scale. So it can carry 500 up to about 1,500 pounds of payload and which can tow between 1,000 all the way up to about 5,000 pounds uh, um, behind it. In, in vineyards, nurseries, berries, stone fruit, citrus, and a variety of other kind of ag and ag adjacent segments where you have a lot of people doing a task like harvesting, moving things around, uh, or, or carrying or surveying back and forth, uh, consistently. And so in more, in a more practical sense, what we're doing is augmenting or we're a collaborative autonomous ground vehicle that is automating movement. So people only do the higher value manipulation type tasks. And by virtue of being collaborative, if you have a collaborative vehicle and you augment four to eight people with that collaborative vehicle, with each of those four to eight people per system being, uh, you know, 20 to 40% more productive, you've got this really, really, really punchy labor savings. It has a very, very short ROI packaged in an autonomous ground vehicle that over time can become the logical layer on top of which people start to do added things such as 
autonomous, you know, uh, uh, weeding, picking, pruning, et cetera. So we're an autonomy company building mobility, starting in agriculture, augmenting the workforce today in the most labor intensive areas of agriculture, and also building a platform for mobility that could be used in ag and non-ag applications. And when you think about robotics from the agriculture, it is in a sea of failures um, today. There's no successful example of a robotics company outside of warehouses and factories, maybe with like iRobot being the only exception, but there, there are virtually no examples of robotics being scaled in a, in a massive way outside of warehouses and factories today. Agriculture is the top frontier robots that do real work in the great outdoors. Like it's the top place where things are starting to come together. And what we build is a really weird, we have this, this very weird approach in the market. We're not building a ton of tractor. We're not doing autonomous spraying. We're not doing autonomous harvesting. We're just doing mobility near people. And what we found is that where there are many people, there's a lot of labor. And if you move heavy things around next to people, or if you tow heavy things next to people, you've got punchy labor savings today, packaging something that can do a lot more things over time. Uh, but, but again, it's a, I think it's the approach you've taken seems very basic and obvious in a way. And I'm almost surprised sometimes that, that it's not how everyone else has started. Um, so it's a, I think we look novel and maybe a little bit mundane. And to me, a, a great robot is arguably boring in a way, but, but kind of as mundane and blends in the background is in real tool or is a, is a real tool. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. A CEO is always thinking about risk. Uh, so I wouldn't be a lawyer if I didn't ask. What are, what are some of the general legal challenges or regulatory hurdles that you've faced in, in, this, in this industry and, you know, with, as your company is operating in it? Yeah. So I think um, autonomy is hard. I, like I think, um, and, and it really, really uh, cascades into risk and, and legal risk as well. Um, so we, uh, I've got about 350 systems out there in the wild today. On a light day, we're driving like 50 to 70 miles across the fleet. On a heavy day, we're north of a thousand miles across the fleet. So like a thousand miles driven a day. If you can imagine when you as a human being drive, you make mistakes. The same is true for robots. And so we track something we call autonomous miles per user intervention. We're typically around 25 or so autonomous miles per user intervention with a teeny, teeny, tiny sliver of those being P0s or P1s. So ones that cause, um, you know, ones, ones where a teeny sliver of those faults are ones where a robot has detected an obstacle and bumped into it and had another safety device trigger or instances where a robot has stopped because it's lost and therefore not, cannot proceed. So most of our interventions are very light touch things where a user can just, can just um, send something on its way. And we are built in a form where we're moving at about two miles an hour with soft bumper bars all around the device, with sound, with noise, with red buttons, et cetera. So the device itself is very intrinsically safe by virtue of design. However, autonomy will and probably will always, or at least for the foreseeable future, make mistakes. And that mistake does admittedly introduce quite a bit of risk. Um, and so you can imagine when we go out and get product liability insurance, policy is pretty difficult to underwrite because you're talking about insuring both a physical piece of hardware and then also a, dry, a literal, like every system we build has 12 cameras on board, is processing, it has a, 12 cameras on board. It's got a much bigger GPU than a laptop that you're running about 300 watts of compute, and it's processing two terabytes of imagery per hour of runtime to drive through the world. In that drive time, it will make mistakes. And so legally, 
what is tricky for things that become tricky for us are getting, uh, getting good tight insurance on things, ensuring that we are safe and safe at the standard of each respective region. Cause we're in the, you know, the U S Australia and other parts of the world, uh, beyond kind of the, beyond making sure we're safe, making sure we're viewed as safe from a regulatory perspective and making sure that we are properly insured. You then get into the other things around like customer privacy. You got a vehicle running around with, with cameras on board. It's logging everything for three months so that if it makes a mistake, you can go back three months into the past and look at exactly the point of time when it made a mistake and, 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 um, you know, get to root cause on it. And so I think there, there are a litany of, 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 um, safety, regulatory insurance things that we deal with for sure. And then past that, um, like, I guess maybe, maybe the, the, the final realm, um, from, from a, a legal perspective, again, is that, is that privacy element of a robot running, running around or driving around near people as well. Um, so I think that's right, probably too extensive of a list, uh, but hopefully addresses the question. No, that's great. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a complicated product you're, you're putting out there, but that, that sounds like you're, you're thinking about all the right stuff. You've told me before about the development of a lawnmower attachment for Burrow. What are some of the challenges and opportunities with that product in particular? And what are other developments you're working on for the next couple of years? What do, you, what do the next few years look like for you? Yeah, so right now we have a, what we call a people scale system, and we will soon be launching a pallet scale system. Um, so again, that's one, most of our fleet today is people scale. So it carries up to like 500 to 700 pounds and tows about 1,000 to 2,000 pounds. We're about to launch a pallet scale, which can carry 1,500 pounds and tow three to 5,000 pounds. Um, once you get to a pallet scale format, you then can start doing towing in a much more significant form. You can also start doing things like mowing. When you do something like towing and mowing, uh, you tend to be operating in GPS denied areas. And then if you think about it, if you are changing how the world looks like behind you, i.e. towing a trailer or mowing, as you are towing or mowing, you have to rebuild your map or your localization layer to reflect the fact that things are blocked behind you or things are being changed around you. Um, and so a major, when we look at the, the faults, like a, my fleets have done roughly 75,000 autonomous miles over the past five years. And in those miles, localization has been the hardest thing that we have faced. So that is the answer to the question, where am I in the world? Um, where am I in the world when you're under a canopy and you cannot see the sky and therefore cannot always rely on GPS? And so as we talk about launching a, something like a mower and doing more and more towing, localization is actually the hardest technical problem that we're facing. Um, and we've got a, a big team of PhDs and really incredible people working on it. Um, but it's probably the, the hardest problem relating to launching those products. And those should be coming in a big way this, this coming year. You and I have talked a little bit about the robotics industry in general before. You've, you've mentioned to me that you think this is sort of a, a watershed moment, like the early days of computers. Um, where do you see agribusiness and farming as a, as a good use case for robots? Where are you bearish? Where are you bullish? Yeah. Um, so I think that... So, Panning way, way out, and then foregoing specific to kind of uh, farming and agriculture beyond. Think about, think about autonomy, think about ro robots. You define robot as a, as a fusion of hardware, software, in training data or data to do a real world physical action. Uh, I think they've been most successful thus far in factories and in warehouses. And in the past three or four years, what you've seen is this 
booming capability set around computer vision. So cameras are really cheap and high quality around artificial intelligence, you know, with the low cost camera and a cheap GPU, you can suddenly see something and recognize it in real time. Um, and then also around just emerging modularity. So that those sets of things, cheap cameras, great AI and modularity mean that suddenly you can build a system that can go into the great outdoors outside of a, where, of a fixed environment warehouse or factory and do a real world physical thing. The flip side of that is that once you're outside, your permutations of scenarios increase exponentially. So, you know, if you're in a warehouse, it's flat floors. The layout can be very clean. I mean, it can be, it can be a very clean controlled setting. Once you're in the great outdoors, all bets are off. You know, like, like uh, Arizona streets look a lot different than Boston streets look a lot different than uh, Tampa, Florida streets. And so as we talk about robots going into the great outdoors, it seems most likely to me and to a lot of others that they will mature most rapidly within agricultural settings, because within agriculture, while you do have, well, you do have um, sometime a lack of homogeneity within a given crop, there are some specific types of crops or operating environments that are fairly consistent between crop A, crop B, crop C. And then separately within agriculture, you're off-road, you're slow smoothing, and there's a ton of labor. And so um, fast forwarding that kind of set of things. So robots are now able to go outside of warehouses and factories. Um, and agriculture seems like the top domain because outside of agriculture, on-road automotive hasn't been super successful. Basma delivery thus far has not been super successful. Some of the commercial landscaping mowing type stuff, that stuff I think is starting to emerge. And then some of the construction stuff I think is, is emerging a bit, but still not super formidably. I think there's some groups like, you know, Canvas, um, which does drywall robots. Those are, I think, I think maturing really nicely. Um, but, but within agriculture specifically, which I would argue is one of the top frontiers for robotics today, if not the top, um, the spaces that seem like they have struggled the most have been some of the autonomous harvesting stuff. Saying people have thought this idea of let's go, let's go into the great outdoors. Let's go into a really niche specific crop, i.e. strawberries. Let's go into a particular production environment within strawberries, i.e. ones grown in the ground. And let's go try to pick those at the same rate of a human being and at the same rate of fidelity. And that, that has not worked really well. I think the thing, and then the, the idea of fully automating a tractor has also seemed to struggle a little bit, although it might be maturing a little bit, a little bit, but still really, really difficult. Um, I think that within agriculture on the autonomy side, the things that seem to be maturing today, I would argue autonomous ground vehicles in our scale are really starting to get mature. We've got more vehicles probably than any other company in the space today running. It's like that. So our, I think I would argue our space is maturing. I think autonomous spraying is, is specific enough that companies like Gus can get it working and can scale it quite a bit. I think autonomous um, spot spraying or weeding is starting to get better, although there are some ironies of it where if you want to take it into corn, wheat, or soybeans, which are the big segments, it's actually a lot harder to go into those spaces than it is to go in the nichier, smaller markets, i.e. things like lettuce. Um, and so the maybe, maybe to apply a thematic rule, I think the challenge of robots in agriculture, putting the technical stuff aside, is that on the um, within the segment, the, the, w within the segment, if you try to comprehensively replace a human being, i.e. to offset labor, that tends to lead you into trying to do a whole host of things because people do a bunch of different things. 
And so if you want to replace a human operating a tractor, or if you want to completely replace an input such as uh, you're doing something like spot play really reliably, you have to do so many, many things to get that working. And you then, because you have to do so many things, you tend to hyperfit to one crop and then end up with something that's really difficult to get working technically and also has really, really fit to one niche space. And so I would argue that companies within agriculture building layers, i.e. an autonomy layer that can work across segments or uh, building things like a sprayer, which can be used across segments, um, those types of approaches are going to be more successful. The companies that go vertical and try to do every single thing that might be automated to get their solution to work within one niche, because at the end of that approach, you end up with a robot that can do one task, not quite as well as a person in one niche crop and which can't easily jump to others. And agriculture is a land of many niches. And if you're just in one, it's hard to have a big TAM. Um, so again, I'm getting really long-winded with that answer. That's a, that's a hard question, um, but those are some thoughts. No, that's, that's great. I mean, you know, one thing that has struck me in, as a thread through a lot of your answers is that even though you're a robotics company, like people is really kind of at the, the center of everything you do. You know, you've got the, the laborers in the field that you're interacting with. You've got the people in your company. Just just talk about people management and sort of the how much of uh, real estate that occupies in in your day to day month. Yeah, I think so. One of my largest customers, um, it's a um, uh, it's a huge vineyard in California. I think that they say very similar things to other other uh, other customers. One of the major things they say though is it's all about the people. I think that that's really really true in. Um, if you're running a very labor-intensive operation, uh, you as the owner, operator, or person running it, start to become a little bit more, um, it's almost like labor becomes your customer because it's difficult to get laborers in and labor is really expensive and you don't, you don't have the ability to like pay a ton more per hour per person um, because if you do, then that cost gets passed along to a consumer who will not buy from you given you're in a commodity segment. Uh, and so I think on the, on the people side, I'm trying, trying to, to, to close this, right? I think where, where there are many people, there's a lot of labor and then building something in such a form that people using it, love it. And people who would buy it, love it because they know the end user loves it. And, and, um, uh, past that, I think for me, what I've found is that where people stand is a function of where they sit. And, and for me personally, frequently I'm selling to, um, if, I, if I'm selling to a, a customer, I'm selling to like an owner, then I'm selling to a middle management layer who actually has to implement stuff. And I'm selling to an end user or labor who if they're in the US probably is a Spanish speaker and has to be able to figure out how to use a robot, which they're encountering for the first time ever um, in a real world production environment to make more money. And if they don't like it, they're just not going to use it. And therefore their owner, the owner of the operation is not going to like it. And then uh, going back to the where people sit as a function of where they sit theme on the building it side, if you think about a group of engineers, a lot of engineers that are, that are thinking about a time you want to build it don't necessarily have a lot of experience, um, you know, going to work in a large production nursery that's selling potted plants that are, that are sold in Home Depot. Um, they're more kind of oriented towards the technology. And so I think for me, the, the, the challenge and opportunity, I would argue the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity set for robotics is building robots that people can actually use in kind of a point and click type format. And whoever solves that in a big way, in a format where it can be used across a bunch of different applications, 
we'll be building something really, really big. And I have not seen that yet. Um, and I would argue that we're kind of on our way to doing it. Um, but, but it all kind of stems from uh, uh, end users loving the product and building something that is, that is a great autonomy. It looks really, really simple and looks really, really boring and people enjoy using it. And it, and it really requires understanding what do people want? What do people want and will they actually practically use to get that to work? Well, we look forward to watching Burrow uh, succeed in this, in this market for sure. Um, last question, where can people go to learn more about Burrow? Yeah, sure thing. So uh, we, you can visit us online. We're www.burrow.ai. Um, if you are a, um, a large nursery operation, uh, vineyard, blueberries, uh, raspberries, blackberries, citrus, stone fruit, et cetera, and you'd like to check us out, you can always email us at sales at burrow.ai as well. Um, we've got tons of stuff running in California, Oregon, Washington, Texas, where else? Uh, East Coast in a bunch of areas, Australia, New Zealand, and we increasingly have distributors as well. And you can also, um, you know, again, use our, on our website, we now have a dealer locator and you can use that to actually just go see one in person as well. Great. All right, Charlie, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. I'll, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, awesome. Well, yeah, Pat, really, really appreciate you having me on. And um, yeah, I guess if, uh, if anybody ever wants to reach out, they can always reach me at charlie at burrow.ai. Um, and we are... Um, Again, an autonomy company starting in agriculture, building the future of work outdoors with a collaborative robot called Burrow that I think um, has a ton of applicability to a bunch of applications. And I believe that robotics today is very much like Mount Everest in 1952 or PCs in 1978. There's so much potential right now. So it's a really, really exciting place to follow as well. Great. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you for listening to the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. To follow along and get additional insights from each episode, visit stoll.com. Please also take a minute to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and may not reflect the views of Stoll Reeves LLP. Participation in this podcast by any individual is not an endorsement of any view or opinion expressed. This is not legal advice and the podcast does not create a client-attorney relationship.